chapter 8, which is found on page 674 and 675. Well, I was hopeful to start this last week and finish it today, but the Lord had other plans. I'm thankful to be able to be here. Thankful for that very much. So, today we begin Christ the Mediator, and God willing, we'll complete it on the 24th of October, which may be the next time that I have opportunity to teach you. This chapter focuses on redemption accomplished through the person and work of Christ. The first three paragraphs address and confess what the Bible teaches about the person of Christ, and paragraphs 4 through 10 focus on the work of Christ. So let's pray as we consider the person of Christ today in paragraphs 1 to 3. Let's pray for God's blessing on our study of our confession of faith. Father, thank you so much for the privilege of gathering in your presence and Thank you for the rich heritage that we have received from our fathers in the faith. We pray as we consider what they confessed about the person of your Son, that the Holy Spirit will shine on our hearts and we will see your glory in the face of Jesus Christ and we will honor and magnify your name because you are worthy. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Now they present the person of Christ in the first three paragraphs, the first paragraph talks about his ordination before the foundation of the world, then his incarnation, and then in paragraph three, they speak about how he, in his humanity, is qualified to serve as the redeemer of God's elect. So paragraph one focuses on his eternal ordination. Paragraph 2, upon his historical incarnation. And paragraph 3, upon his divine qualification for the work of the Redeemer. And that's what we're going to look at today. Paragraphs 1, 2, and 3, the person of Christ. So first of all, his eternal ordination. Paragraph 1. It pleased God in his eternal purpose which is why I refer to it as his eternal ordination. It pleased God in his eternal purpose to choose and ordain the Lord Jesus, which is why I refer to it as his ordination. I could have said selection because it says to choose. So it's eternal selection and ordination. It pleased God in his eternal purpose to choose and ordain. Selection, choose, and ordain, ordination. To choose and ordain the Lord Jesus, his only begotten Son, according to the covenant made between them both, to be the mediator between God and man, the prophet, priest, and king, head and savior of his church, the heir of all things and judge of the world. 
unto whom he did from all eternity give a people to be his seed and to be by him in time redeemed, called, justified, sanctified, and glorified. So this paragraph focuses on the eternal selection and ordination of Christ. Who was the author that selected and ordained him? It is God the Father. It pleased God to choose and ordain the Lord Jesus Christ. How do I know it's God the Father? Because it says, His only begotten Son. So it features God the Father. In Isaiah 42, verse 1, we read, Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen selection, in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit on him. He will bring forth justice to the Gentiles. Also, it's very clear from Ephesians 1 and 2 Timothy 1 that the New Testament features the role of God the Father in the eternal plan of the triune God. Secondly, the occasion. When was Christ ordained? In eternity. We read, it pleased God in his eternal purpose. 1 Peter 1, 19 and 20. You were redeemed, Peter says, not with silver and gold, but with precious blood, as of a lamb without spot, who was foreknown, indeed, before the foundation of the world. And again, in 2 Timothy 1.9, who saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose, it pleased God and his eternal purpose, his own purpose and grace, which was given us in Christ Jesus before times eternal. So this purpose and grace was given us in Christ. Well, that features the role of God the Father. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, Ephesians 1, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, even as he chose us in him. Again, Scripture features the role of God the Father in this eternal ordination. And the manner, how was he ordained? Solemnly, according to the covenant made between them both. In Psalm 110, verse 4, we read of this covenant. Jehovah has sworn and will not repent. You are a priest forever after the order of of Melchizedek, speaking about the oath that the Father swore to God the Son incarnate when he seated him in heaven and in glory in history. He swore to him, the glorified Christ, you are priest forever. And that covenant sworn to the incarnate Christ in history is in accordance 
with God's eternal purpose, solemnly ordained in eternity. And again, in John 17, 2 and 5 and 6 and 24 and 25, here's the amazing thing. The, the incarnate Son of God remembers what he experienced with his Father before the world was. And we read in John 17, even as you gave him, the Son incarnate, authority over all flesh, that to all whom you have given him, that is before the foundation of the world, he should give eternal life. And verse 5, and now, Father, glorify me with your own self, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. Before the world was, the Father selected his elect in Christ and gave them to Christ. And then we read in verse 6, I manifested your name to the men whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were. And you gave them to me. What is he talking about? He's talking about God's eternal plan, purpose, and decree. He chose us in him before the foundation of the world. Unto whom he did from all eternity give a people. Father, I, verse 24, I desire that they also whom you have given me be with me where I am, that they may behold my glory which you have given me, for you loved me before the foundation of the world. He was aware when he was incarnate that his life did not begin at the incarnation. His life has no beginning. He always was. He is the supreme being. And before the foundation of the world, he was with the Father. And before the foundation of the world, the Father gave his elect to him in the eternal counsel of redemption. So, the manner, solemnly, according to the covenant made between them both. The substance, what was Christ ordained to be before the foundation of the world? Mediator, Messiah, heir, judge. We read, to be the mediator between God and men, the prophet, priest, and king, head and savior of the church, heir of all things, and judge of the world. And they present biblical evidence to support all of these ways in which the Father and Son relate in the eternal counsel of redemption. First of all, prophet. Acts 3, 22 and 23. Moses indeed said, A prophet shall the Lord God raise up. He raised him up in history because he planned and intended and purposed to raise him up in eternity before the foundation of the world because he works all things after the counsel of his own will. 
and priest, Hebrews 5, 5 and 6. So Christ also did not glorify himself to be made high priest, but he that spoke to him, you are my son, this day I have begotten you. And he says in another place, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And he swore to him that oath of everlasting perpetual royal priesthood in history because he intended so to do and planned and committed to do in eternity before the foundation of the world because he works all things after the counsel of his own will. And what happens in history is exactly what God ordains in eternity. And king, Psalm 2.6, yet I have set my king upon my holy hill. And Luke 1, 32 and 33, he will be great and will be called the son of the most high. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever and of his kingdom there will be no end. The Lord God gives to him the kingdom in history because he designed, intended, planned, and decided to give it to him in eternity before the foundation of the world because he works everything after the counsel of his own will. Because the will of God is what is. And what he, what he ordains, he brings to pass. You want to see what God planned at eternity? Look what God does in history. Because he works all things after the counsel of his own will. So that's the relevance of these texts cited by our forefathers. When you understand that simple principle, they all make sense. He's the head. Uh, Ephesians 1, 22 and 23. And he put all things in subjection under his feet and gave him to be head over all things to the church. He did that in history because it's exactly what he intended to do in eternity. And heir, Hebrews 1, 2, has at the end of these days, God has at the end of these days spoken to us in his son, whom he appointed heir of all things before the foundation of the world. And judge, Acts 17, 31, inasmuch as he has appointed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom he has ordained. He ordained the God-man, Jesus Christ, to be the judge of all living and dead in history because he so decided in eternity before the foundation of the world because he works all things after the counsel of his own will. And he's the mediator. There is one mediator between God and men, himself man, Jesus Christ. 1 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 5. So the scripture abundantly declares these things that our confession says. And the final thing about the ordination of Christ before the foundation of the world is its design. What was he ordained to do? The answer, to save his posterity, his people. This is what the confession says. Unto whom he did give from all eternity a people to be his seed. Not his physical children, 
but his spiritual posterity, his seed, his spiritual descendants. And to be by him in time redeemed, called, justified, sanctified, and glorified. And they appeal to Isaiah 53.10, which says, Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He has put him to grief. When you will make his soul an offering for sin, he will see his seed and will prolong his days. And the pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. His resurrection from the dead, he will beget spiritual children from every kindred, tribe, and tongue. And they also appeal to Romans 8.30. And whom he foreordained, them he also in time called. And whom he called, them he also justified. And whom he justified, them he also glorified. So in summary, with regard to the eternal ordination of Christ, God the Father ordained God the Son before the foundation of the world by an irrevocable and solemn commitment, which is usually called the covenant or council of redemption. And he ordained him to be mediator, Messiah, heir, and judge. And his ordination had a remedial and redemptive design. And exactly what God planned, decided, committed in eternity is exactly what happens in history because he works all things after the counsel of his own will. The second paragraph focuses on his incarnation. His incarnation, the incarnation of God the Son in history. He did not always have a human nature. When he was ordained in eternity, he is the supreme being, equal with the Father in every respect. But now something happens in history. He takes to himself a human body and soul without ceasing to be God, and our confession confesses his incarnation in paragraph 2. The Son of God, the second person in the Holy Trinity, being very and eternal God, the brightness of the Father's glory, of one substance and equal with him, who made the world, who upholds and governs all things he has made, did, when the fullness of time was come, take upon him man's nature. Now, what this asserts in one simple sentence is this. The Son of God did take upon him man's nature. If you leave out all the meat, the bone, the skeleton is this. The Son of God did take upon himself man's nature. Then you read the rest. With all the essential properties and common infirmities thereof, yet without sin. And how did that happen? In what manner did this occur? Or by what mode? Being conceived by the Holy Spirit in the womb of the Virgin Mary. The Holy Spirit 
coming down upon her and the power of the Most High overshadowing her. And so was made of a woman of the tribe of Judah, of the seed of Abraham and David according to the scriptures. And what is the result? So that two whole, perfect, and distinct natures, human and divine, were inseparably joined together in one person, God the Son, without conversion, composition, or confusion. Which person is very God and very man, yet one Christ, the only mediator between God and men? Well, there's the biblical story of the incarnation. What a remarkable story. I mean, if the Bible didn't reveal such, such a mystery, it would, it would be unfathomable. Human ingenuity never in a million years would have come up with anything like this. In fact, human disbelief has rejected and denied almost every single aspect of what God did. So let's, what are we talking about? Number one, they confess the subject of the incarnation. Who took to himself man's nature? Did God the Father do it? God the Holy Spirit? All three persons of the Trinity? Second thing, when did it occur? Before the foundation of the world? Thirdly, what exactly happened? What is the essence of it? Fourthly, how did it happen? And fifth, what results from it? Now those are the five questions or issues that the confession addresses and in basically in that order. They define the subject, time, essence or substance, manner or mode, and result, permanent result, of the incarnation. First question, who? The answer is, who is the subject of the incarnation? God the Son. The Son of God, not the Father, not the Spirit, God the Son. The second person in the Holy Trinity. Being very eternal God and the brightness of the Father's glory of one substance and equal with him, who made the world, who upholds all things, and governs everything that he made. It's talking about God the Son, and God the Son only and exclusively. And for biblical support, consider John chapter 1, verse 13. Uh, verse 13. John chapter 1, 1 to 3, and then verse 14. So, 1, 1 to 3. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. God the Word, God the Son, one and the same person. The Word was God. He was the supreme being. He always was. In the beginning, he was. He always existed. He had no beginning. He is eternal. He is the supreme being. He is not the Father, but he was with the Father. He's a different person but he's the same being. He's the same one and only supreme being, but he's not the same person. 
The word was with God. He was with God the Father, a distinct person. And yet, he was God. He was and is the one and only supreme being. The same was in the beginning with God. He always was. He's eternal. He wasn't made. He always was. In the beginning was the word. The Father and the Son were always together. Father, glorify me with the glory I had with you before the foundation of the world. You loved me before the foundation of the world. The word was with God, the Father and the Son. Always together. And yet, distinct persons. You love me. The glory I had with you. I'm not you. You're not me. We're not the same person, but we are the same supreme being. How can one being be more than one person? I don't know. People don't make this kind of stuff up. God reveals that this is who he is. God is three persons. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And these three persons are the one and the same supreme being. And they always were, and they always will be, and they are now. And this text is saying that the subject of the incarnation, the person who became human without ceasing to be divine, was not God the Father, and not God the Spirit, but God the Son. Because in verse 14 we read, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. All things were made through him. He's the creator. Without him was not anything made that was made. And he upholds all things by the word of his power. He's the creator and preserver of the universe. And yet he became flesh. He became human. He took to himself a true human body and a true human soul without ceasing to be the supreme being. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. So the exclusive subject is God the Son. The time of the incarnation, it's called the fullness of time. Approximately 2,000 years ago, approximately 4,000 years after the creation of the world. That's what happened. Galatians 4.4 But when the fullness of time came, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law. He did not always from all eternity have a human body and a human soul. In history, approximately 2,000 years ago, a remarkable event happened in history. God the Son took to himself a human body and a human soul in the fullness of time. He became what he never was without ceasing to be what he ever was. He never was human before, and he became what he never was, human. He became what he never was, flesh. He took by addition what he never had, a human body and a human soul. Which brings us to the essence. What actually happened 2,000 years ago? 
did take upon him man's nature, a human body and a human soul. He became human with all the essential properties, human body and soul, and all the common infirmities of human beings in this fallen world, and yet without sin. For what the law could not do, Romans 8, 3, in that it was weak through the flesh, God sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. Not sin, but in the likeness of sinful flesh with all the common infirmities. And Hebrews 2, 14, 16, and 17. Since then the children, that is Christ's spiritual children, are sharers in flesh and blood, he also himself in like manner partook of the same. He partook of flesh and blood. He partook a human body and a human soul. And Hebrews chapter 4 verse 15 says, For we don't have a high priest that can't be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but one that has in all points been tempted like we are yet without sin. He was liable to the common infirmities of fallen mankind without sin. He was liable to temptation in his human soul. He was liable to suffering and even to death. He did suffer and he did die and he was tempted and yet without sin. In fact, he even got tired. We read in John chapter 4 that when he was traveling from Judea back to Galilee, he was wearied with the journey. All the common infirmities, all the essential properties, yet without sin. We read in Luke 2, verse 52, that Jesus increased in stature and in wisdom. Increased in wisdom? Yes. How can that be? Because he has a human soul. And his human soul developed. His mind developed. He increased in stature. He grew up. He got taller. He was a little baby. And he grew up to full adult height. And he had a little boy's mind. And he increased in wisdom in his human mind. Because he had a human soul and a human body. still has a human soul and a human body. He has a human nature. Without ceasing to be God the Son and the Supreme Being. Remarkable, isn't it? God the Son became human with a true human body and soul. In this way, he took all the common infirmities of humanity in a fallen world, was subject to pain, thirst, weariness, hunger, temptation, and nevertheless, he was absolutely without sin. Now the manner, how did this happen? The virgin birth. Being conceived by the Holy Spirit, in the womb of the Virgin Mary, the Holy Spirit coming down upon her and the power of the Most High overshadowing her, so that he was made of the woman, of a woman, of the tribe of Judah, of the seed of Abraham and David, according 
to the scriptures. In Luke 1, 27, 31, and 35, we read, To a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. Faithful exegesis indicates that that's referring to Mary was of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And then the Holy Spirit through the angel says to her, And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bring forth a son and will call his name Jesus. And the angel said to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Wherefore, the holy thing which is begotten of you shall be called the Son of God. She said to the angel, how is this going to happen? Because in, in terms of sexuality, I'm a virgin. The way she put it was, I don't know a man. I've never known a man. I, how, how am I going to get pregnant when I'm a virgin? That's what she asked the angel. And the angel told her, this is going to be a miraculous conception by the power of the Holy Spirit. It's going to be a miracle what happens to you. There isn't going to be any human father. You're going to conceive. You will conceive. He's going to truly be your son. And you're going to contribute to the humanity of your son everything that a mother contributes to the humanity of her son. And yet there will be no human father. The conception of this child will be asexual. It will be miraculous and supernatural. That's what he told her. And Matthew chapter 1, because, you know, Joseph finds out that Mary's pregnant. He thinks, she must have been unfaithful to me. That's the only way it happens. Until the angel spoke to him and said, that's not what happened. This is what happened. A virgin will be with child. That which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. A virgin will be with child and bring forth a son. And you're going to call his name Emmanuel, which being interpreted, God with us. And then Romans 1, verse 2 and 3 which he promised before through his prophets and the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, who was born of the seed of David according to the flesh. His mother was a descendant of David. His mother was a descendant of David physically, and his father was a descendant of David legally. So that his father, humanly speaking, who was not his biological father, but was his legal father, was of the royal line. And his mother was descended from David through another line, through Nathan. It's remarkable what God did. So that he actually is, through his mother, the seed of David according to the flesh. And through his father's, his, his not biological, but human father, his legal father, through his legal right, he inherits a throne. It's remarkable. What God does. Absolutely remarkable. Remarkable. 
Now, I don't want to get into all the details, but this particular paragraph is a combination of the Westminster Confession of Faith and the First London Confession. And I could read you the Westminster Confession and read you the First London Confession, but this, there's no need, I don't think. You got the idea that it's a miracle and that both Mary and Joseph are descended from David. And so Jesus, in every sense, is David's heir. Biologically, he's of the seed of David according to the flesh through his mother. And legally, he's David's heir through the royal descendant, through, through the, royal, uh, the royalty of his father, who was his legal father, but not his biological father, humanly speaking. It's a very remarkable And then the result of the incarnation, the so-called hypostatic union. Now, here we go. You knew you were going to get a big word today, right? Hypostatic. It, it comes from the Greek, hypostasis, which in some places is translated person. So basically, the hypostatic union is the union of the person of God the Son. There's only one person. And that deity and humanity, divine nature and human nature, are united inseparably in this one person. And from the Greek, hypostasis, it's referred to as a hypostatic union. The union of two natures in one person. And that's what they say. So that two whole, perfect, distinct natures human and divine, were inseparably joined in one person, God the Son. Without conversion, the divine is not converted to human, the human's not converted to divine properties. Composition, are not all mingled together, but they're distinct. Or confusion, there's no confusion, there's, they're separate and yet united. Which person is very God and very man, yet one Christ? And there are many errors associated with this. Arianism, the guy that knocks on your door from the Jehovah's Witness, these deny that Christ, Jesus Christ, is the supreme being. Docetism, from the Greek word to appear, this error denies that he's a true that he has a true human body, that he only appeared to have a body, but didn't really have a body, because material things are evil. It was the first Christological heresy to develop. Then there's Apollinarianism, which denies that he has a true human soul. Then there's Nestorianism, which denies that he's just one person, and teaches that the divine logos became united to a separate human person. And there's really two different persons, the human Jesus and the divine word. And then there's Eutychianism. You like all these things? Amazing, huh? As I told you, people in history have denied every part of it. And these deny that Christ has two distinct natures. And they say that's all mingled together into one. All these errors through the history of the church. 
for the last 2,000 years developed because people simply cannot embrace, will not embrace what the Bible says about this. That one person, God the Son, took to himself a true human nature, human body and human soul, without ceasing to be divine. And that in God the Son incarnate, Jesus Christ, deity and humanity, are joined together in one person permanently, Jesus Christ the same, yesterday, today, and forever, that joined together permanently in one person without mingling the human and divine, without confusing them, or without making human divine or divine you. Without composition, confusion, or mingling or anything else like that. That's what the Bible teaches and every aspect of it's been denied in history. Well, that brings me, thirdly and finally this morning, to consider his qualification. God the Son incarnate is qualified to do all that he was ordained to do through the power of the Holy Spirit and the authorization of God the Father. The anointing of God the Son incarnate has to do with the Father's authorization and the Spirit's endowment. The Lord Jesus, paragraph 3, God the Son incarnate, in his human nature, thus, or in this manner, united to the divine, in the person of the Son, was sanctified, set apart, consecrated, and anointed with the Holy Spirit above measure, having in him all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge, in whom it pleased the Father that all fullness should dwell, to the end that being holy, harmless, undefiled, and full of grace and truth, he might be thoroughly furnished. He might be thoroughly furnished. So it's the equipment or qualification of God the Son incarnate. He might be thoroughly furnished by the Father and the Spirit to execute the office of mediator. This is about him being thoroughly furnished to execute the office of mediator. Qualified in every way. Enabled and authorized to execute the office of mediator and surety. Which office he took not upon himself, but was thereunto called by his father, authorization, commission, who also put all power and judgment in his hand and gave him commandment to execute the same. So first of all, his endowment with the Holy Spirit. The Lord Jesus, in his human nature, was sanctified and anointed with the Holy Spirit above measure to the end that he might be thoroughly furnished to execute the office of mediator and surety. God, Psalm 45, 7, your God has anointed you. Acts 10, 38, Jesus of Nazareth, how God anointed him with the Holy Spirit and with power. J. 
John 3, 34. For he whom God has sent speaks the word of God, forgives not the spirit by measure. Luke 1, 4. Luke 4, 1 and 18. And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led in the spirit in the wilderness. And he said in verse 18, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he anointed me to preach good tidings to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives. And God endowed Christ with all wisdom and divine fullness. We read in Colossians 2.3, In whom are all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge hidden? And again, Colossians 1.19, For it was the good pleasure of the Father that in him all the fullness should dwell. And he endowed Christ with all perfection, grace, and truth. Hebrews 7, 26. I'm just talking about him in his human nature, in his humanity. For such a high priest became us, holy, undefiled, separated, etc. And John 1, 14. And we beheld his glory, glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. So the Holy Spirit, according to our confession, enabled, endowed Christ, God the Son incarnate, to fulfill the office of mediator and surety, which is exactly what the Father commissioned him, authorized him to do. Uh, the rest of the confession says, which office he, that is Christ, in his humanity, took not upon himself, but was thereunto called by his Father. The Father commissioned Christ as mediator. So Christ, Hebrews 5, 5, did not glorify himself to be made high priest. The Father commissioned Christ with all authority as mediator to act as surety and judge. Matthew 28, 18. All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. And Acts 2, 36. Let all the house of Israel therefore know assuredly that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. So his qualification in his human nature to serve as mediator and redeemer rests upon the enabling of the Holy Spirit and the authorization and commission of God the Father. In conclusion, the confession couples anointing by God the Spirit, authorizing by the Father, the endowment of the Spirit, the commission of the Father, thoroughly furnish and qualify Christ in his human nature for the office and work of mediator and surety. So we've looked at the person of Christ, his eternal ordination, his incarnation in history, the personal incarnation of God the Son, and then his qualification by the enabling of the Holy Spirit and the authorizing of God the Father. His qualification is human nature. So it moves from eternity to incarnation in history to his suitability in his human nature to do what God sent and commissioned him to do. All right, we're done for today. Do you have any Comments or questions on what we looked at this morning?